Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we're watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we're checking in with FXX's unconventional, sort of romantic, sort of comedy, You're the Worst, which is entering its third season. Then, because that's a show that brings a lot of drama to its comedy and vice versa, we'll talk about the intermingling of the comedic and the dramatic. When does something serious make a laugh deeper, and when does a laugh help build dramatic stakes? And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week, so stick around. This week, we're conducting a brief survey to learn more about who's listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour and how you're using NPR podcasts. Please visit npr.org slash pchhsurvey to complete the survey. It would really help us out. Thank you so much. Talking about You're the Worst is just the best this week. But before we get started here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. And Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books and comic books and other stuff for the NPR website. And joining us from NPR in New York is our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzoff, and Pal for Life, of course. Now, Mike, <laughs> when you are not busy being the person who wants <laughs> produced this podcast. What do you do with yourself? I'm the producer for uh, Ask Me Another. One of the producers. It's good to talk to you, buddy. Thanks. You too. Well, before we get started with this week's show, we have two little things that we want to mention. First of all, if you heard our recent show about the get down and you got the show uh, soon after it first dropped, you may have heard a little error that we meant to mention last week <laughs> yeah. that I forgot to call out. If you heard it go by that Rob Kardashian's fiance, Black China, is the ex-girlfriend of one of Rob's ex-boyfriends, you might have said... Huh? <laughs> that is not accurate. What we meant to say was that Black China is the ex-girlfriend of one of Rob's sister's ex-boyfriends. So if that was confusing, now you know what happened. So we're just going to clear that up. Little correction. Second, and much more fun. Oh, this is so much more fun. Oh, yeah. It's so much more fun, and it's so much more important. People of the West Coast, please note a little announcement we dropped into the podcast feed yesterday about the fact that we are coming to a few of your fine cities in the month of October. Specifically, we will be in Seattle on Monday, October 17th. We will be in Portland on Wednesday, October 19th. We will be in San Francisco on Friday, October 21st. And we will be in Los Angeles on Sunday, October 23rd. Will there be special guests? There will be special guests. In Portland and in Seattle, we will be with our pal for life, one of the best fourth chairs ever, Uh our pal Audie Cornish. The great and good Audie Cornish will be with us in Portland and in Seattle. She's great live. She's so good live. She is wonderful live. So uh, if you are up there in that corner of the country, that is who you will see with us. Now, in San Francisco... Also very exciting. Less familiar to us, but super exciting also. Glenn has a face of utter anticipation. Uh (laughs) Um, So you may know her from uh, her writing at her own site. You may know her as uh, Prudence over at Slate, where she gives advice. That's right. With us in San Francisco, Mallory Ortberg. Now, in Los Angeles, also very exciting for us. Friend of the show, all-around good dude, and my frequent Twitter bantering partner on the topic of romantic comedies, the fine 
Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, yeah. Will be with us. The very funny, the very smart Kumail Nanjiani will be with us in L.A. We are we are appearing with people we would pay to see. Absolutely. <laughs> We're very, very excited. Uh, so tickets to all of those shows will be available this coming up Tuesday. That is September 6th. 2016, if you're keeping track at home. And that's at noon Pacific. So it's noon Pacific yeah. on September 6th, Tuesday. Those will all be available at nprpresents.org. They do often sell out in a great big hurry. And in fact, having them sell out in a great big hurry is a big help to us. Uh, it shows interest and we hopefully get to do this again. So buy them up real quick <laughs> on this coming up Tuesday at noon Pacific. Day after Labor Day. Day after Labor Day for all of our four shows in Portland and Seattle and San Francisco and LA. We're excited. So on to our A topic for this week. FXX's You're the Worst, uh, originally on FX and then they moved it to FXX. Uh, It's a show that started off kind of, I would say, quietly. It gained a lot of critical support over the course of its first season, and then it inspired even more enthusiasm and even more critical writing, I would say, when its second season told an unexpected story about depression. Uh, Starring Aya Cash and Chris Gere, it follows two very proud misanthropes who enter into what they intend to be a non-relationship, only to find that it's gotten a little more complicated than they expected. Now, I'm going to go to Stephen, because I know that Stephen has watched a whole bunch of this show just in the last little bit here. Uh, Where are you coming down with this right now? So as you said, I I just started watching this show and I started from the beginning on Friday and finished it up this morning. So I have mainlined 25 episodes of this show. Right, because we have seen the first two of the third season, season, which as this drops, one of them has aired. The other one is the upcoming show for next week. And my initial reaction to it was dread that I was going to have to watch all 25 episodes. Why is that? To me, you mentioned that this show started quietly. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons it starts quietly is I think it takes a few episodes to find its footing. The initial premise of the show seems to be to steal a line from, I believe your pal Sarah Bunting, Mm -hmm. every garbage can finds its lid. (laughs) (laughs) I forget whose line that is. (laughs) That, that, uh, that, That the show is sort of built around the premise of this person is awful, this person is awful. You know what would what would make a perfect couple is to put both of these awful people in one place. And Over the course of the show, and about four or five episodes in, it suddenly takes a turn. It seems to steer away from what I was originally fearing was its premise, which is these are people who are keeping it real. Mm-hmm. And over sure. here, you have these fakier people in their fakier relationships who sold out and aren't keeping it real. Right. And that happiness is bogus. That and- happiness is bogus and that being nice to people is bogus. Right, sure. and, and that that any attempt to engage with the world is is pretense and false. Sure. And over time, it drifts farther and farther away from that and becomes a story about growing up. Yeah. And yeah. coming to terms with normalcy and the fear of normalcy, uh, coming to terms with commitment and the fear of commitment, coming to terms with devotion and the fear of devotion. And it gets richer and warmer without losing that bite mm-hmm. that runs through it. These people are not necessarily massively changed. They are yeah. largely learning to come to terms with people. And over the course of the second season, which we'll get into, yeah. I'm sure, momentarily, mm-hmm. it gets way deeper. Yeah, I think that's right. Mike, what did you, where are you on the show? I agree with everything Stephen said. I want to sort of jump on that part about growing up because that's the thing that like resonates the most with me is characters who are finding themselves firmly in their 30s and 
kind of realizing that they can't keep acting the way that they've been acting. They aren't necessarily changing whole cloth. They're not saying, I'm going to change right now. But as these two characters and really kind of the multiple other members of the cast, they're finding that they're making compromises with their life or they're deciding that how they've been coping with their own baggage, with their own personality quirks, with their own anger or trauma or all those things that we'll get to later, it just isn't working anymore. And through their sort of surrogate family that they've sort of created together or, you know, in some cases, actual relationships, they are slowly changing or at least like realizing that they cannot fix each other. Yeah. yeah. uh, But accepting each other, which I think does have a, a tendency to sort of fix each other, too, you know? Sure. How about you, Glenn? I was also dreading this show because I had seen it. I had seen a couple episodes of the first season back uh, when it came on, and it didn't grab me because I, I thought if this was going to be a show about them coming together. And it's actually a show about them trying to stay together. And that's always more interesting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've said yeah, that before. Yeah, that's that. always more interesting to me than, than a rom-com. I read somewhere that the character of Jimmy, one of the two leads, uh-huh. was not intended to be British, but uh-huh. uh, the, the producers just loved this guy, Chris Gere. I, too, love this guy, yeah. Chris Gere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is what turned it around for me. I mean, everybody's on the show's good, but I'll pinpoint it at episode eight of the first season, which is called <laughs> Finish Your Milk. There is a scene where he is allowed to lean into the preening pomposity that he is so good at Mm -hmm. and also allowed to lean into the goofiness. There are moments when he feels particularly self-satisfied that he gets this expression on his face, which is just such a joy to watch. It is Goofy Jimmy is is my favorite Jimmy. Uh, When we meet his family in the second season, I believe, we start to understand this character in, in a bigger way. It's Big. It does not suffer, I don't think, from uh, second banana syndrome, however. Like a, a show like Will and Grace, the Jack and Karens mm-hmm. are much more interesting than, than the two yeah. leads. That's not true here. Uh, I find in many cases that the character, particularly of Lindsay, seems bigger, broader, more cartoonish, less appealing. Uh, nothing wrong with the actress, but that character doesn't necessarily always feel like she belongs in this show. This is how you get me into a comedy about uh, people coming together. You dump this much acid over it. And yeah. <laughs> that, that part is definitely Glenn Weldon. I, I want to defend the character of Lindsay. Wonderful actress, Kether Donahue, mm-hmm. I enjoy so much on this show. Yeah. She she's is, so weird. She's, it's such a weird <laughs> performance. And, so and weird. she is going through a process as well. Mm-hmm. And she's going mm-hmm. through it differently. She is uh, she's the main... She's married when the show opens. She is Relatively the, recently, She I is think. the best friend yeah. of Gretchen, uh-huh. played by Aya Cash. And they were like party people together. Mm-hmm. And they, they you hear all about their former hijinks and everything. And in the process of, of growing up and, and getting older, the character of Lindsay kind of has her life fall apart a little bit. And you see her trying to build an adult life from nothing. Mm-hmm. And by nothing, I don't mean like no resources. I mean like no life skills at all. Mm-hmm. And I think right. in a way it parallels some of the other processes. There's also, we should mention, of course, the character of Edgar, mm-hmm. who is is a, 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 vet. a military veteran with PTSD, PTSD yeah. living in Jimmy's, Jimmy's house. house. Amazing house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it incredible, a nice house. amazing it is an house. incredible house. Which they explain away at some point why Jimmy would have an amazing house. But. He's a writer. He's mm-hmm. a, a writer. And I think he got a big advance for his book. And I think there's some other money also. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and Edgar, who, who starts out as just this kind of tortured schlub, mm. 
he's coming out of yeah. the depths that he's been yeah. in as well. So everybody is moving through something yeah. on this show. This was an interesting show for me because the creator of the show, Stephen Falk, is somebody who I know a little bit, mm-hmm. um, was a recapper at Television Without Pity at the same time I was. Uh, I used to recap Fraternity Life and Sorority Life as well as a bunch <laughs> of much better shows. But those are the ones that I enjoy mentioning. And we don't know each other. Like, we're not friends in the sense that, like, we don't hang out. Right. But we are definitely acquaintances. We have close friends in common. And so it was really interesting to me to see somebody that I knew create a show that then got all this buzz around it. And for me, when I first saw it, I kind of thought kind of the same thing as Glenn. I was kind of like, this is not really for me. And I think for some of the reasons that Stephen is talking about, that I don't necessarily love the sort of horribleness of people for its own sake right. as a as a hook for a show. But I think the longer the show went on, the more it became really surprisingly compassionate. And it Mm -hmm. it is very much a show about the importance of being able to tolerate kindness both for other people and by other people towards yourself. That is not the only theme of the show, but it is a theme of the show. And I think... I think this is where we can kind of introduce the storyline from the second season. And this is a spoiler from the second season if you haven't watched it. But in the second season, we learn that Gretchen has dealt with depression for a really long time. And she has sort of the kind of issue where it comes and goes a little bit. It'll show up Mm -hmm. and then it fades and it comes back. And one of the things I love about that storyline, there are a bunch of things I love about it. I think it's a very sophisticated and thoughtful treatment of mental illness, which is really not that common on television. But I also love the fact that the way that these people meet, you sort of get the impression they're kind of, it's these two peas in a pod. It's this yeah. two peas in a pod idea. It's this kind of, well, they're, you know, they're they're perfect for each other because they're the same, right? They both hate everyone. And what you learn over time is his seems, so far at least, his seems more to be history. That he kind of got this way through a combination of his legitimate personality, but also his history. Like Glenn said, there's family stuff. The explanation comes more from his experiences in life. Again, some of it is personality, some of it is experience, but hers has much more of a chemical component than his does. And I really like the idea that these people, although they seem very similar, have actually some very different reasons for winding up in this situation where it's so hard for them to relate. There are some scenes in that second season, particularly late in that second season, where there's it is almost overwhelmingly emotional to me. It really I cried a lot at one of these episodes Mm -hmm. because of the because there is this wonderful moment where for him, this growing up process allows him to be kind to someone. And for her, it allows her to accept that from someone mm-hmm. and you can see that kind of happening at the same time. I, I know the exact scene you're talking and about. And that's when they seem that's when they suddenly seem well matched. It's not because they hate people the same way. It's because they manage to kind of mature in a direction that allows them to connect. And that's that's what I really love about it. Can we talk about the the show's use of sex? Absolutely. Uh, don't watch this on a plane. Don't watch this show, <laughs> say, at the office. Not the where... first first one of the third season in particular. Absolutely. <laughs> find, uh, find a way to watch the 25 episodes you needed to watch of this show in one weekend yeah. around your children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really bracingly graphic, I would say. Yeah. And as the writer Alan Gerganis always says, in American life and American fiction especially, we tend to cut to the next morning. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but that denies uh, a creator, a writer, uh, a showrunner from showing us uh, how they have sex. How they have mm-hmm. sex tells us a lot about character, tells yeah. us a lot about their situation, yeah. tells us a lot about how they feel in that moment. And it, this show does not shy away from that uh, in, in any of those, though sometimes I wish it would. Yeah, there's a there's a scene, there's a sex scene right at the beginning of the of this third season that just started. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, It's there are stuff like this in the pilot, and then mm-hmm. it had become less like right. that for a really long time. And so when we had Stephen Falk at press tour with the cast, somebody said, why can you talk about this? Because all the critics were talking about Har Har. I was trying to watch it on the plane, yeah. all this other stuff. And he basically said, I felt like it was important because of where we left them at the end of the second season. I felt like it was important to show that like they were still connecting. They were still hot for each other. They still had this relationship. And it's important for that to be part of it because if you try to if you try to show a relationship like this that starts as a one night stand that is so driven by sexual chemistry at first and you don't talk about the fact that they still like having sex with each other you start to yeah. wonder whether you really believe that they're still there sure. if they're not prepared to to acknowledge that it's because they love each other right. you know what i mean mm-hmm. that sexual chemistry is so sort of integral to their dynamic as much as their like zinging banter between the two of them like they found each other sort of sexually first and then they've like progressively become well matched in the way that they interact the way that they mm-hmm. sort of outwardly are mean-spirited to other people but sort of find each other in the middle both ways and i think especially the way that the last season story arc ended it would have been a big deal if they if that had like winnowed away you know yeah. that would have been like a different direction for this upcoming season i think what they're sort of hinting at with this season is whether her approach to trying to get help or like the compromises they've sort of made to each other, whether that can last. I think, you know, is she serious about trying to work through, you know, the upkeep that is keeping her depression or her anxieties sort of at bay, like with the idea that she assumes, I guess, that it can just get cured. And that's not true at all. Right. And they talk about meds, but not only about meds and all of that stuff. And and he goes through every process Mm -hmm. in in clueless but well-meaning partner trying to figure out how to navigate someone's and like going through the snap out of it and cheer up and all of the things that are. And I'll do something really special for you. Once I do something nice, you'll feel better. I want to get back quickly to to a point that Glenn made that I think is really right on the money, which is the how people have sex tells you a lot about them. I mean, Part of what's interesting about their sex life as it unfolds through this show is there's a lot of very mundane daily intimacy (laughs) and sort of stuff that they're perfectly uh, Mm -hmm. happy to do around Mm -hmm. each other Mm -hmm. in ways that other couples don't necessarily do. And it's kind of a sign of what makes them a surprisingly high functioning couple in in some ways. And the process of this show is them learning how to reveal more and more of themselves. There's, There's an episode where like he realizes she can speak Spanish mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and they're, they're, they're constantly finding these things out about each other and the sex is kind of a precursor to that mm-hmm. yeah and I think th- what, what I always and I watched I rewatched the pilot for this conversation and one of the things that's interesting about it is that, that what you see is a kind of bravado where all of the willingness to reveal yourself because that's really what this you're the worst title is all about right. is talking about all the ways in which they're terrible people the first <laughs> night that they meet 
And a lot of that willingness to reveal yourself in the course of a long relationship, that willingness to reveal yourself comes from trust. Mm -hmm. In the course of a one night stand, it comes from absence of stakes. And so Uh they're kind of once you've established that lack of stakes, it's really hard to then take it back and be like, okay, but what if we wanted to act like there were stakes? What if we really wanted to know each other? One of the things I love about this show is you hear stuff go by in the dialogue that you just say, now, see, that happened in someone's life because that is too specific <laughs> yeah, yeah. for a writer to have made it. For me, the big one in the third season premiere is the thing about washing your legs, yep. yeah. <laughs> about whether or not you wash your legs. Like, it's sort of do you specifically wash your legs yep. or do you just like your legs get clean because you're in the shower and water soap is running down. down? And I thought as soon as I saw that, I thought that happened to someone. Yep. I don't know who yeah. it is, but that <laughs> happened to someone because it's too weird to be something that just came up in the writer's room. But I love I that in, in shows where like oh, that, too. that's specificity becomes so universal. Like everyone has like right. those like weird quirks that we all It'll make you think about, about whether partners. you wash your legs or not. <laughs> and yeah. that sets up my favorite mode of Jimmy, which is affronted Jimmy. Yeah. He, is, <laughs> he is so good. You know, in a way, this is kind of inverted catastrophe, right? British right. guy, yeah. uh, American woman as opposed to the reverse. Uh, now, they probably hate to hear that because the show came out before catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But if you have even a thin Anglophilic nature, like a thin thread of being an Anglophile, his Britishness just feeds me in a, in a way that I really, really like. I also want to uh, shout out two other performances, not the second Bananas, but the third Bananas. Brandon Michael Smith as Sam, a client of Gretchen's. Because she is a good. music publicist. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Everything out of that, that guy's mouth is written and performed ex- exceedingly well. And Janet Varney as Becca. Uh, this <laughs> performance, she greets the world with a glare. And it's so this is, sustained. This is Jimmy's ex. Jimmy's ex. And Lindsay's sister. And Lindsay's whose, sister. whose wedding they meet at. Yes. Oh, it's, it's, every time she's on screen, it's just a delight because mm-hmm. she is she has so a, angry. And I don't think we should refrain from talking about Edgar. Yeah. Edgar was my way into the show hmm. as somebody who felt like it was spitting an acid in my face for mm-hmm. the first few episodes. Having a, the undercutting of this kind of galumphing clumsy sweetness. But a very gentle soul. A very, a very, very gentle, very gentle soul. And loyal friend, too. And, mm-hmm. a, and a very loyal friend and somebody who is much kinder to people than they than they deserve. Yeah. But then the way that they have been able to add richness to his mm-hmm. character and like I find I am very invested in yeah. small victories in his life. Yeah. And that was my first like, okay, I like this person. I'm going to fixate on this person. And then I came to like other people more and more. Yeah. So uh, I will be curious to hear. I know a lot of you who listen to the show have watched You're the Worst. Uh, as I said with Superstore last week, this is one I picked up off of a lot of other critic recommendations. So I'll be curious to hear how many of you are watching it, what you think of it. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH and let us know what you think. Now, when we come back, we've talked about the way that this show mixes comedy and drama. We're going to talk a little bit generally about the mixing of comedy and drama right after this. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rody, the first on-the-way delivery network that connects people who have items to send with drivers heading that way. Rody is an easy, convenient, and cost-effective way to get door-to-door delivery for items big and small. Rody lets you track deliveries in real time and offers up to $10,000 in protection on every shipment. Get a free estimate in seconds. Download the Rody app on iPhone or Android device or visit rody.com NPR. 
Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. In our first segment, we talked about You're the Worst, which has had some very funny moments as well as a lot of very dark ones. That's increasingly common on television, and it strains everything from network marketing to awards designations. The first thing that I want to talk about is sort of timely because it's not going to be too long before we're getting Emmys. In some ways, to me, it feels like the awards stuff is where these divisions become the most obviously bogus. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they really are bogus. What do you think, Glenn? I thought about a show called Difficult People, which we've talked about before. In a lot of sitcoms, it seems like the writers and producers believe that characters are lobbing jokes at one another, like tennis ball throwing machines or whatever. And, (laughs) And they just stand there in this affectless void, never reacting to what the other person says. You've written about this before, I think, how important it is for when somebody says a joke for another character to laugh because that is a human thing. Just in this last episode of Difficult People, we get a moment like that, which is great. In a show as joke-dense as Difficult People is, it could really just be an onslaught. Sure. You need a moment like that to give the characters room to breathe. Now, there's not a lot of serious stuff in Difficult People, at least on the surface, there's a hell of a lot of pain between the mother and the daughter right. on that show. And it's sometimes allowed to come to the surface. It's mm-hmm. sometimes allowed to breathe so that it can be dealt with in jokes. I talk a lot about the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. I am against sentimentality, which is reaching for emotions, trading on this manipulation of emotion. All art manipulates your emotions. That's what makes it art. But when it's not earned, that sentimentality. Feeling is belongs in any comedy because feeling is how you get stakes. Feeling is how you turn these characters from joke machines into people. And that's that's what I think a show that kind of hovers at, at, between the two genres like this one, like difficult people like, I guess, Nurse Jackie. Nurse Jackie. Jackie's uh, uh, like this, yeah. Which is a lot more drama than, than comedy. So yeah, that's, that's where we're living right now. I don't have an answer to you, but I don't think there's a clear demarcation anymore. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. How about you, Mike? I think to most audiences, like forgetting the awards, most audiences I don't think even care anymore either. Mm-hmm. I think good shows are just good shows and dramas can be deeply funny. Like the most dramatic shows can be deeply funny and comedies can have heart and sadness and all sorts of things, sometimes in the same hour, sometimes episode to episode. And uh, I just see like You're the Worst is part of a a sort of general trend that is happening where maybe 30-minute shows are now considered comedies regardless of actual content. And hour-long shows are considered dramas because that's how it's always been. But those lines are blurring so much. Girls is considered a comedy, but it's more dramatic. Master of None is sort of in that same way. Yeah. I actually want to bring into this a a strange little bit of historical precedent. In I want to say late 80s, early 90s, there were a couple of TV shows launched at the same time. There was Hooperman starring uh, John Ritter. And there was Slap Maxwell, oh, M.D., yeah. starring Dabney Coleman. I have never heard of any of these now, shows. No, they did not last very long. <laughs> yeah. They were launched as dramedies. And it was like, is this a new thing? We're going to try this crazy thing about these funny, dramatic shows. And I remember the reaction to them being people, you know, at least critics, like very confused by the tone. Now, basically... Everything falls somewhere on that spectrum. When I think of all my favorite shows, there's some component, almost all of my favorite shows, there's some component of both. I would say there's not a lot of drama in Archer. (laughs) But I think that's always been, I mean, I think that's always been true, right, up to a point. Particularly, I mean, if you look at it as 
dramas like Hill Street Blues, right? right? They would have moments yeah. that were supposed or to be celebrity. comedic. If you, I think, even going back to like shows like cop shows, I think cop shows in the seventies and eighties typically had sometimes jokes. And, and there was certainly, certainly drama in Mash and Barney well, Miller. Absolutely, oh absolutely. All in the family, and you had it, and all in the family. So you had. It's not a new thing. I think what's a new thing is that. It's less a component into something that's clearly one thing or the other. And it's more, like Mike said, it's more a thing that doesn't necessarily live in either place. Because All in the Family, even though it contained moments of drama, was structured and built and and it signaled that it was comedy yes. by the fact that you could hear people laughing and by the fact that, what you know, it had signifiers and act breaks that kind of built on its comedy-ness for the most part. And what's funny is you can – but you can look at things that were a little bit format-breaking for that, right? And believe it or not, one of the ones that came to mind for me was Love Boat, right? <laughs> Which was an hour long. It had a, it had a laugh track. Uh-huh. And it would have sometimes sad stories, but mostly like heartfelt stories or comedic stories. And yet it's an hour long. It was shot on film as opposed to on tape, which was very common for sitcoms at that time. So there have always been things that didn't entirely have every piece of cultural Mm -hmm. signaling that goes with either a drama or a comedy. And I think in movies, that's been much more. Nobody's ever expected to be able to look at a movie and necessarily say, this is a drama or this is a comedy. Mm. Even though some things clearly are dramas right. and some things clearly are comedies, right. it doesn't have that same, there's not the same sense that you're supposed to neatly know which it is. And in fact, at the Golden Globes, when you suddenly see movies split into a oh, drama yeah. versus yeah. a comedy, it feels kind of weird because they don't do that at the Oscars. Yeah, right. Now, the interesting thing is that means at the Golden Globes, comedies get awards, which they don't at the Oscars. Right. But it does feel weird sometimes to see people try to figure out, especially, and this is complicated by the fact that they lump comedies in with musicals and make a bunch of weird dis- decisions around that. But it is sometimes strange to look at it and be like, uh, you know, if you take a movie like The Big Short, sure. mm-hmm. right? It's clearly supposed to be funny at a bunch of points, but I wouldn't. But it's also supposed to be deeply depressing. And I think people in movies are much more accustomed to that. Whereas television had a much neater, as you said earlier, if it was a half an hour, it was a comedy. It was an hour, it was a drama. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if this uh, is anything. They say that television is a writer's medium and film is a director's medium, meaning that's who really shapes your. your Used to be more true than it is. I would. I think that's true because when you are mixing comedy and drama, you run the risk of really varying the tone so much so that the show doesn't feel cohesive. Uh-huh. I think nowadays, a dire- that's the director's job, is to unify the tone or at least vary the tone so that it feels like you're still in the same universe. I would say that a show like You're the Worst and uh, the other shows we mentioned that that do walk that line have, have a lot to do with the direction, not just the writing. Right. I think it's telling, and I'm not sure what it's telling about maybe just me personally. If I were to keep a TV diary over the course of the years and mark down every time a show made me cry. First of all, I would run out of pens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but like how much more often I cry at comedies, TV comedies, mm-hmm. than I do at dramas. Maybe part of it is that I watch more TV comedy than I do drama, but like things that have really, really gotten me. You're the worst is the latest example. Uh, Transparent. I, I found I find parts of Transparent almost suffocatingly sad. Parks and Rec, that is a show that really 
it invests you so deeply in those characters and it does that through laughter that they're using that they're using comedy as a as an emotional weapon in a way by endearing you to the characters so much that when when they get whatever the good version of comeuppance is yeah, sure. you're invested in it it's meaningful sure. to you. You, you you it is it is an emotional payoff in a way that sometimes like more straight drama doesn't have that resonance for me and i think that that in a way it's like comedy is just buttering you up for these like to me much deeper and grander emotional payoffs even in like a show like buffy the vampire slayer another show that made me cry a whole lot has a lot of comedic elements and i think that's one Mm -hmm. reason that it affected me as much as it did i think from the drama side the comedy actually helps lighten the tension that's building if if a show is unrelentingly dark, kind of your Netflix Marvel shows or Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. shows I I like just fine, but when they're so unrelenting all the time, it actually has like this feeling of like one-upsmanship. They just have to keep building that tension where shows that I like more, your Breaking Bads or even Sopranos, like when they have kind of a a format-breaking episode or when they have jokes within that or a cold open that is different in tone, Mm -hmm. it makes me understand that these people's lives, these characters' lives, are more like us in some ways because sure. otherwise like the stakes are so high that how right. could they possibly laugh at anything? Well, right. I don't think there's much funnier than Walt like flinging a pizza on the, on the roof and breaking bad. In, or, or running ever. Yeah. yeah, being in his underpants in the first scene. You know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's something that helps those dramas when they are able to sort of laugh. I see this actually in comedy too, where the characters themselves don't know that they're in a comedy. They're just playing it completely straight and like right. the situation itself is comedic. There's other times, you know, maybe Brooklyn Nine-Nine where like the characters know that they are funny and kind of react as such. Yeah. In drama, that I think that really actually helps is it just helps the audience. It resets your, your emotions and then you can raise those stakes again. Yeah, I think you're onto something there, Mike, because uh, it's really about art holds a mirror up to nature and the life that we live is not pure comedy and the Uh life that we live is not pure drama. To get layers of characterization, you need both. You need to let us see a little bit of both because that's our subjective feeling that some days are great and some days are not and some days are funny and some days are tragic. All right. Well, again, I'll be curious to hear what all of you think about this. Uh, Your favorite comedies that are also dramas, your favorite dramas that are also comedies. Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter and let us know what you think. Now, when we come back, it is going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? So come right back. Support for Pop Culture Happy Hour and the following message come from Eloqui, the leading brand for women's plus-size clothing and accessories. Inspired by the belief that all women deserve to have access to high-quality, runway-inspired fashion, Eloqui is the online destination for contemporary, fast fashion in sizes 14 to 28. For 50% off your first item and 40% off everything else, visit Eloqui, E-L-O-Q-U-I-I dot com slash happy hour and use the promo code happy hour during checkout. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? Well, first of all, we haven't had a chance in a in a regular segment to talk about the recent death of Gene Wilder. Yeah. And I know this is not obviously it's always a little awkward when we talk about recent deaths in mm-hmm. in the happy, but you know we are in the business of assessing legacies sometime. Gene Wilder had a remarkably happy making film legacy that that we did want to talk about really really briefly. 
Yeah. You've heard a lot about Willy Wonka. He was in a little film called Willy Wonka. People have been talking about that. He was crucial to that film because that film depends on not just being saccharine sweet. It needs a layer of not menace, but darkness, mystery. Yeah. Uh, You couldn't figure out where he was coming from. That's crucial to that film. He brought that in a big way. And of course, the most beautiful comedy of all time, Young Frankenstein. He is fantastic. He, He starts out very controlled and then goes into manic hysteria, as is his want. That was great. Blazing Saddles, of course. I want to point out a couple performances that haven't been talked about a lot, but if you are hankering for a little bit of Gene Wilder this weekend, uh, this is a good place to start. The Frisco Kid is a 1979 film uh, where he plays a Polish rabbi on his way through the Old West, and he meets uh, Harrison Ford, a very young (laughs) post-Star Wars Harrison Ford. It's funny, not a perfect film, but it's very him. And then The World's Greatest Lover, which he wrote and directed... Where he's trying to become like a famous cinema film lover like Rudolph Valentino. It's right. uh, it's in that role. So those are a couple very funny little performances that he's given. Yeah, and when I've been thinking about about Gene Wilder and, and, and his legacy, like I came of age as a movie comedy fan with Gene Wilder movies. Mm-hmm. Like especially like his work with Richard Pryor, sure. your movies like Silver Streak. Like those were the first movies I heard about, like, oh man, you gotta see these. Like mm-hmm. they were a little dirty mm-hmm. and they were and and but he was also so able to pull that off in part because of that persona that was honed in a movie like Willy Wonka where he was he was also lovable and also warm and and so so yeah it's it's a it's a major loss and a and, and a sad day and and like i said like it's weird when we talk about deaths and what's making us happy but it's really important i think for us to to briefly acknowledge his legacy mm-hmm. And then for more unalloyed happiness crazy ex-girlfriend a show that we all know and love if you like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and you have Spotify, they not only have a playlist of all the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend songs, which I know Glenn has ranked, mm-hmm. um, but each one accompanies a commentary about the song by the makers of the song. And so, and that show lends itself so well to that kind of deep dive. Uh, if you love it, I want to make sure you know it's out there. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend songs on Spotify. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week, buddy? There's a really wonderful essay on LitHub.com called How a Self-Published Writer of Gay Erotica Beat Sci-Fi's Sad Puppies at Their Own Game. Now, if you know nothing about (laughs) any of that, that is a a mystifying headline. Um, I didn't know much about this. There's a controversy with the Hugo Awards. It's mystifying to me, and this enlightened me. This is a great explanation of exactly what happened, and it's also a really fascinating insight into a guy by the name of Chuck Tingle, who to me has been a punchline for the last couple of years. Yo, he he writes dinosaur porn, ha ha ha. So obviously it's funny just to read these titles, but uh, titles such as Pounded by President Bigfoot, Space Raptor Butt Invasion, Seduced by Dr. Bigfoot, Attorney at Large, which think about that for a second. (laughs) And then of course the pithy Schrodinger's Butt. Now he has been producing these these ebooks, self-published ebooks that he sells on Amazon about 2 to 3 a month and he is just this fascinating guy. Many people thought he was just like a performance artist, right? Or this was a character, this was a bit, but there was recently a AMA and ask me anything on Reddit with his son. His son says that he's a autistic savant, that he's also schizophrenic. It's so fascinating that this guy lives in the world, is producing what he's producing and has become a part, a central part of this Hugo Awards controversy. So if you need guidance through all of that tangled mass, this essay called How a Self-Published Writer of Gay Erotica Beat Sci-Fi's Sad Puppies at Their Own Game is a really good 
essay that also talks about writer's block. Talks, it's, it's a, it goes in a personal direction that the writer does. It's really, really nice. So Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Mike Katzef, what is making you happy this week? Okay, so this one sort of comes out of the uh, old things that are new to me department. So after watching Stranger Things, I, like a lot of people, obviously saw the connections to people like Steven Spielberg, but also Stephen King, which put, has put me lately in the mood to revisit Stephen King, because it's been probably 10 years since I've read anything by him. So I briefly entertain the Dark Tower series, which is way too sprawling, and I probably should actually read like Harry Potter first before I get into <laughs> like an actual like book series. So I decided with something maybe equally as daunting, but at least more self-contained, which is The Stand. Oh, I love so The Stand. So I've decided to read the so-called like the complete and uncut edition, which was republished yes. in 1990. There's an original version that had maybe 150,000 words, according to Wikipedia, that were cut from the original book that he then added back. So my goal for the next, I don't know, six, ten years is to read this (laughs) uh, 1,152-page book. I even entertain the idea of, like, the the audio book, but that is literally 48 hours of listening. So it's post-apocalyptic. It's kind of a contagion story, an outbreak story, and then watching society sort of break down. I'm very new to this book so far, like 70 pages in, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped to, to dig in. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Mike Katzef. Yeah. I, I enjoy the stand very much myself. I'll be curious to hear how you like it. I'll let you know in five years. <laughs> <laughs> I got two things this week. One real quick is uh, Single by 30, which is a rom-com on YouTube. It is very much billed as a show for millennials, about millennials. Uh, It stars Harry Shum Jr., who you might know from Glee or other things. And it's about this man and this woman who, when they're in high school, they make one of these pacts that if they're not married, when they're 30, they'll marry each other, which is a ridiculous gimmick, as many rom-coms begin with. It's actually pretty charming. I liked it. It's on YouTube Red, which is their their premium service. Last time I looked, the first episode was still free. You can see if you like it. I liked the second episode more than the first. I've seen two. It's it's fun. It's not great, but it kind of scratched a a simple rom-com itch that that sometimes does not get scratched for me very often by television anymore. Uh, The other thing is I've seen three episodes of Queen Sugar, which is going to be on on OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network, really created for television by Ava DuVernay based on a novel. She has lined up a bunch of really good directors. She directed the first episode herself. She also did some of the writing. It's really good. It's a family story about a family that has to kind of re, uh, kind of regroup after the dad can no longer care for the sugar farm Uh, slash plantation that they have had uh, for a long time. And there's a lot of just very, very good stuff in it. I like the performances. I like the writing and the directing. It's gorgeous to look at, as you might expect. So Queen Sugar uh, coming soon to own the Oprah Winfrey Network. So that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at GH Weldon and Mike at Mike Katzif. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And of course, Mike remains our producer emeritus and music director and his band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you right back here next week. 
Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. If you're looking for a new podcast, check out How to Do Everything. It's a survival guide for all of life's trials and tribulations, like bear attacks, romantic conundrums, and romantic bear attacks. You may well find it helpful, and you'll definitely enjoy hearing about other people's problems. Find Mike and Ian now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts.